Have you ever wondered, how do you want to die? There's not a great deal we can control in life, but we all have our preferences. And it's great when we can clearly communicate our preference to others about important decisions in our health. But what happens when we can't? We need clear and concise instructions that all care stakeholders can rely on if they can't ask us directly. Family, providers, carers, payers, and so on. But think about it from their perspective too. Say you're a nurse or a doctor on a shift caring for someone who can't make their own decisions. So what do you do? You refer to an advanced care directive, a piece of paper, to try and make sure you do something that's right for the patient while maintaining their own best interests. Sometimes it works. A lot of other times, it doesn't. So it's time for a change. And my guest today is passionate about utilizing technology to drive this change. I'm speaking with Dr. Marin Cooper from Touchstone Life Care. And today, we're going to talk about the human rights approach to healthcare, aged care regulatory reform, and the challenges behind decreasing and preventing over-medicalization of dying and end of life. And we'll talk about lots more too. Collaboration starts with the conversation team, Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Dr. Merrin Cooper. She's the CEO and founder of Touchstone Life Care, which protects and communicates people's wishes for end-of-life care with cloud-based, easily shared advanced care plans. Merrin appeared on the podcast way back in February 2019 on episode three, where she was in the early stages of launching a B2C product. Now she's here today with a team of world-class experts and launching an enterprise solution that helps not only patients and doctors, but vendors, providers, and advisors in aged and palliative care. Hey, Marin, how are you going? Hi, Peter. It's fantastic to be here and congratulations on everything that you've achieved since we last spoke. Your podcast is fantastic. I think your interviews have been great and what you're doing about combining people's passion, people's drive, the need for technology to improve healthcare is really out there and making a big difference. It's really impressive. Hey, thank you to you. Yeah, look, thank you to you. Look, you know, came on in episode three on something that because there was no podcast when you actually came on. So appreciate you making the time then. This will be, I think, episode 167 when it goes live. So there's been 164 episodes between when we spoke. So lots of opportunity to refine. People can go back and listen to episode three if they want a bit more context and background about you. But I'm curious to learn now, what have you been up to since we last spoke in episode three? I think I could put it in one word and that is learning. So I've been learning a lot about technology, about technological solutions to human problems, about system approaches and all of the flaws, the built-in things that you need to design for. But mostly I've been learning about where advanced care directives will work and how they will work best. We knew when I spoke with you last that advanced care directives were needed, but how you get them into the hands of the people who need to make decisions on them is what we've been really researching. So I've been speaking to a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders, patient advocacy groups, federal governments, lawyers, care providers, 
we've been responding to the Royal Commission and learning about how the whole system works because what you said in your introduction about coming at a problem from both perspectives, both the perspective of a patient who has to make decisions and then from the perspective of doctors and care providers who have to also make decisions when they enact that advanced care directive. So we've been producing a product now that is an enterprise solution, more than just a B2C product, but something that will work for every step and every part of our very fragmented health system. So it's been really exciting. My head's exploded with lots of things that I've learned. And then we've got creative and come up with some really good solutions. So we'll be launching our enterprise product for care providers, for financial planners, for IT vendors in August. Nice. Excellent. Good timing to have a chat then. I want to touch on the Royal Commission in a second, but just thinking about just the area of advanced care planning, has much changed in that space between when we spoke and where we are now in that last two and a half years? A huge amount. Two and a half years ago, people hardly knew what it was. And if they knew, that includes patients as well as people who work in the health industry, if they knew what it was, they thought it was just a piece of paper. But in the last two and a half years, three things have changed and you alluded to them. The rights-based approach, which means people have a right. We have to go out of our way to make sure that their wishes are known 24-7. And that means cloud-based interoperable thinking and solutions. Secondly, as you said, the regulatory reform has changed so that, again, that rights-based approach and digital technology is being embedded into our expectations for aged care. And thirdly, a concentration on patient-centered care where people, and this has been alluded to in some of your recent podcasts, people or patients have access to and input to their own care planning and even their own notes. So all of that's been driving an awareness of advanced care plan. People reluctantly are going, when they are healthcare providers, they're saying, oh, I better do something about this. Prior to now, it's been, I would love my patients to have advanced care directives because we all know when elderly people go into hospital, they are very much at risk of complications, falls, dementia, deliriums, medication mismanagement. They often come back to their aged care facility worse than when they went into hospital. And the poor care providers are left with a person that they care for who's worse off. So nobody wants this over-medicalization, but they haven't been able to do anything about it until now. And now there's actually ways that they can get involved in ensuring that their patients' rights and wishes can get conveyed. And it's funny, between now and when we last spoke, I've had my own experiences personally with the whole approach and advanced care directive, specifically with my dad who passed away in the past couple of months. And he was a stubborn old man (laughs) and he wasn't one who really wanted to be kept alive just for the sake of being alive. And those are pretty much his own words. And we as a broad family across two states through COVID would continually refer back to what he would have wanted in this point in time. And that worked pretty well for us. And that was a, in all things considered with everything happening externally, it seemed to go the way that he wanted. So I can see certainly from my own personal perspective, the importance of doing that planning up front. But we were lucky that we were able to do all of that work up front with him. So I can see the importance of that. 
I think the other thing that's changed about advanced care directives is it's not just whether it exists or not, it's whether it's available 24-7 to emergency doctors who have to make decisions at three o'clock in the morning. It can't be on a piece of paper. You can't be ringing up the one and only family member who's on holiday, maybe, (laughs) overseas, who knows. You can't be phoning around saying who knows the password to the computer because life and death decisions need to be made quickly. And secondly, you need good quality advanced care directives. For example, an advanced care directive that says, I want all care, but I don't want to go to ICU, makes no sense to an ED doctor. If all care means they need to intubate you, that requires admission to an ICU. So the ED doctor's left with, what do I do? And interestingly, from a legal perspective, as advanced care directives become more legally valid and more accepted and doctors think, I'm going to have to follow this, If that doesn't make sense, we're really putting our doctors in some awkward positions. So we need advanced care directives that have some degree of quality control and a digital system allows that. Pieces of paper, you can still end up with every box ticked. I've had people seizing in front of me, clearly at the end of life, with stage four cancer, and every box is ticked. I do want CPR and I don't want CPR. (laughs) And as a doctor, of course, You will always default to life-saving measures, especially in that sort of situation. And, of course, family always default to saying, oh, please just do everything or let's wait till everybody can get together and make a decision. And the patients suffer or treatment is delayed, good quality treatment, whether that be adequate pain relief or life-saving medical intervention. If you have to wait and check, and find out what the directive says, either way, good quality treatment gets put on hold. Yeah. So the patient suffers, the hospital becomes operationally less efficient, decision-making is poor, and then, of course, you've got added expenses. Such an important point about how good quality treatment is defined essentially within that advanced care directive and not having that in an accessible and quality controlled way, it really seems like a failing in the system if that is indeed the case. So important one to be focusing on. And we touched on the Royal Commission for a second there into aged care specifically. Was advanced care planning and digitizing that whole space mentioned through that process? It was very specifically. So there is a recommendation 66B that all residential care providers will have to produce an up-to-date advanced care directive when they phone a paramedic to take one of their clients to hospital. And up-to-date doesn't mean a PDF that was uploaded three years ago right? or a piece of paper. And the paramedic's not going to wait while they look through an in-tray of 50 pieces of paper and get an out-of-date one. Secondly, recommendation 68 is that all aged care adopt digital technology, and that includes uploading advanced care directives to my health record at scale, and that means more than uploading a PDF. So we're starting to get live documents, interactive documents, such as what Touchstone Life Care has developed is going to be required in the future more likely. Yeah, got it. Yeah, both of those things together really do paint the picture of why this is a now problem to solve. And we've touched on it before on the show, but thinking about the need for aged care to become more digitized and adopting technology, 
makes sense in practice, but I think the proof is going to be in the execution of it, right? The willingness to adopt at scale. Yeah, look, there's a couple of changes there. And that's what I've been spending a lot of time on is asking questions. People are change weary. We know that aged care is fighting against a poorly resourced workforce. The number of people who are adequately trained and feel confident enough to do care planning is they're pretty thin on the ground. Some of them are having to do 100 care plans, so they need help to do that. There is home care packages that provide some revenue to assist them do the care plans, but they need digital tools such as this to be efficient. And then, yeah, that's one of the main things. Those people are also, they've got change fatigue They've had to introduce so many things for compliance for the new ACQS over the last few years. There's more coming. So anything that makes their compliance easier, they love. And thirdly, anything that saves them time is really important. So if you're going to ask home care providers, aged care providers to adopt new technology, It better be easy to use, it better be easy to implement, and it better save them time if you want them to adopt it. So that's exactly what we've really put our minds to. And thinking about the legislative landscape, so thinking about the rules and controls and everything around advanced care directives, as I understand, it's different at a state-by-state level, right? How do you go about doing something at scale when you've got to deal with all of those state-by-state requirements? Yeah, again, that's what we've spent a lot of time on, looking really closely at the legislation. In essence, there's two types of law. There is state-based law and there's common law. State-based law, if you fill in that form, it might be 26 pages. It can change every five years if you cross all the T's and dot the I's. That is a legal document that must be followed. In terms of common law, if you have an advanced care directive that's written on almost anything, that also needs to be followed. But it can be challenged in a court of law. So you can have a common law advanced care directive that's legally valid now in every state for nearly every condition, every situation. And if you build it belt and braces and a good quality common or advanced care directive, it's not going to get challenged. And so we've built into the system automated notification and sharing of your advanced care directive so that your GP, lawyer, enduring power of attorney, care providers, neighbours, friends, anybody who the user selects has access to it ahead of time and can query it. So if there are issues, if you think your sister's coercing your mother, you get that ahead of time, not just a piece of paper after the event. And you can actually ask some questions, debate it. We have systems where you can roll it back, you can delete it, you can lock changes on it. So we've got built in legal validity to it. It sounds really helpful, actually. (laughs) I can see how in a practical sense that can be handy and then still have something that everyone can then refer to in the end is, yeah. Yeah, look, it is a medico-legal document effectively. And so that's why we've got a multidisciplinary approach, both digital, medical and legal. Believe it or not, we're all like each other. Yeah. (laughs) Doctors and lawyers holding hands. (laughs) There you go. It's harmony. And thinking about your experiences, particularly the past couple of years, doing a lot of learning and listening and building and reflection, thinking about some of those wins and losses and everything through that journey of trying to disrupt the current system. What's your advice to those that are trying to do something similar in their domain in terms of disrupting the current system and building something better? 
hard work, lots of questions, put your own biases aside and get people teamwork because that also provides alternative viewpoints. So often when we get passionate about something that needs change, we can get very narrow tunnel vision. And so we need to get passionate, but then open it up again. You know, that concept of double diamond exploration. So persistence, we just have to keep on one step at a time, knocking over one obstacle at a time. There are some people that I presented to two and a half years ago, And then more recently, I've come back and I've said, look what I've gone off and been able to do. And they've said, this is wonderful because you can see it yourself, but you have to put yourself out there, do the hard work, take a few risks to put it in front of somebody else. And they can then see the end result and go, oh, yeah, I see where you're coming from. I can join you now. In terms of teamwork, I've had a wonderful colleague, Tamara Surant, who's got this phenomenal understanding of the mechanics of the federal government, and she keeps them updated with the work that we do and our progress. So keeping people close and staying close to people so that you build trust, you build transparency, and they come along on the journey with you, and they have input along the way and eventually you end up with a product or a solution that's got input and ownership from people along the way. In terms of losses, I think the losses are and the the setbacks are all when you just go too hard, too fast with somebody and you don't bring them along with you. When you get so passionate about your product or solution that's right, that's the only one, and you've done all the research so you're further down the track than them and you just can't understand why they don't see it, that's when you fall over. Yeah, why don't they understand? They must be silly. There's a wonderful way of making decisions and I think it also applies to change management and that is you have to have a process but then you need participation. So you've got to get participation from all of the stakeholders and that what's in it for them idea I think is not good enough. It's like, what can I learn from this person? What have they got to contribute? What do they genuinely know that I don't? That sort of participation is crucial in if you've got serious desire for change. Such good advice. In the past, we've talked a little bit about technological determinism, but we've not done that on the podcast. I'm curious to explore that a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit more about your view on all of that and how it relates to healthcare? Yeah, I came across this term recently when I was learning a little bit about artificial intelligence and cybernetics. And I used to say just because something exists, it doesn't mean we have to use it. And some people would say our ability to invent, to create, is almost ahead of our ability to understand how best to use those inventions and creations. I think from a personal point of view, just because ICU exists, just because I can be intubated and ventilated, maybe I don't want that. And in a big picture, we're all starting to say things like, well, no to certain social media giants, that sort of thing. But that's in a private and an individual concept. But also at a more structural level, healthcare needs to include some KPIs, some outcomes that are more than just technology, more than just five-year survival rates, more than just remission rates. My backstory, when my husband died, he was 23 and I was on the bed with him. I was looking into his eyes 
saying I love you as he died. And do you know what's surprising about that? It's rare. 30 years later, with all of our advances, that is still rare. And yet that should be or could be one of our chief KPIs, to be able to die with the person I love being there with me looking into my eyes. And if technology gets in the way of that, maybe it's less of a priority for me. That's refusing technology, if you like, because you've got different values. And it comes back to this decision-making. One, what are my priorities? List them. And technology might get in the way of achieving that as a KPI. Two, participation. Who else is involved? My children, the doctors, who else needs to know? Having a process, having priorities, having participation, and then presenting my choices and values on a flat level field that I can assess them or somebody making a decision on my behalf can assess them to make a decision about me. So we talk about risk management in business and risk management or advanced care planning should be part of our healthcare delivery. Totally agree. And it gives so much to think about and hopefully others can address some challenges or difficult situations from different perspectives after thinking about some of what you've just talked about. So thank you for that. Lastly, Meryn, to close out our conversation this time, I'm curious to know about what you're focusing on in the future and any innovations you might have in store. There are issues around jurisdiction-specific PDF forms, so we'll be addressing that. But certainly intelligent advanced care planning is something I'm interested in. That does not mean prescriptive advanced care planning, but it does mean helping people to do a better advanced care plan, predicting which patients for whom advanced care planning will be most beneficial, like who is likely to lose capacity soon and therefore needs an advanced care plan now, generating confidence scores. So more and more doctors might be presented with goals of care, health care, from my health record or similar, plus an advanced care directive. Maybe there's an enduring power of attorney with different forms. So we can't shove all these in front of a doctor and expect them to make a good decision. We can use artificial intelligence to perhaps generate confidence scores around some of those forms. So we've got lots of, there's a lot of data that needs to be collected before you can have good learning models And that's what we're starting to do now. Lots to work on and really exciting to watch. Meryn, I'll put the details for Touchstone Life Care in the show notes of this episode so people can check it out. And they can also check out the Touchstone Life Care listing on the Talking Health Tech directory and get in touch with you also in the community forum too. So really looking forward to this really exciting time for you and can't wait to connect again. We'll have to do it sooner than another two and a half years because who knows what will happen that time, but we'll look forward to catching up with you then. Thank you so much for making the time. Great to see you again. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen. Listener.